Good evening, brothers and sisters. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 43. Genesis 43, we'll read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 34. Loved ones, this is God's holy word, so let's give it all our attention now. Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass, when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? But they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, Could we possibly have known that he would say, Bring your brother down. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered surely by now, we would have returned this second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise Go back to the man, and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home, and slaughter an animal, and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid, because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may make a case against us, and seize us, to take us as slaves." with our donkeys. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sacks, our money in full weight. So we've brought it back in our hand, and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. But he said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. 
Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present that was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He's still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God, be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they sent him a place by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. And a New Testament reading from Acts 5, Acts 5 verses 27 through 32. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would take our hearts and open them wide and plant the truth, the living truth of your word deep there that we might bear the fruit of repentance and faith. We pray that you would work in us all that is pleasing in your sight. Lord, we are not what we ought to be yet. We pray that you would uh, conform us more to the image of our Savior through this word. We pray it in his name. Amen. There's a prayer in the book, The Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's, it's very helpful for, for just encouraging your own devotion and your own prayer life. Uh, but one of them is a prayer on repentance. And it, uh, it has a line in it that goes like this. In my Christian walk, I'm still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My tears are so much impurity. My confessions are so many aggravations. My receiving the Spirit is tinctured with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. 
It's a wonderful line, isn't it? I need to repent of my repentance. It's a prayer that understands how deep our sin reaches and also how deep God's grace reaches, right? That God hears that confession. Um, does that, does that res- resonate with you? Perhaps you think of time of confession on Sunday mornings. We come, we confess our sin in the church, and, and week after week we come and we have that bit that we re- pray together and then time of silent prayer to confess our sins before God. And as you, as you bring your sin to Him in confession, suddenly you realize, well, this is what I asked for forgiveness for last week. And it's what I asked forgiveness for the week before and the week before that and the week before that. Um, we're not very good at, at, at repenting and growing in grace and changing and, 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 and going on from uh, having victory over a sin and going on in the Christian life. And at, at one level, that's normal and that's expected because the more we grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ, the more we're going to see our sinfulness in the light of His holiness and our, re- our best repentance, our most sincere confession, most heartfelt confession, and most uh, serious, earnest endeavor after holiness will always be, be tinged this side of glory with sin. But that being said, it's also possible for us simply not to be practicing real repentance, to be content with halfway repentance, with, with halfway measures, um, but God, God calls us to a wholehearted turning from sin to Him. Uh, Joel, Joel chapter 2 uh, reflects this. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Return with all your heart is what He, what he asks us. Um, he wants a complete turning around uh, from going in one direction to going in another. We might be willing sometimes to alter our behavior a little bit, but, but to have our hearts fully in it is, is another thing, isn't it? Um, I, th- I think you might be familiar with that in your, in your own experience. That you can change your behavior, but, but inside your heart is still facing the other direction. And it's only a matter of time until your behavior swings back around to where your heart's compass is aligned, right? It's like, it's like taking a compass and, and scratching out the end and putting an S there. Um, the, the arrow's going to still point north. Whatever way you reconfigure it or, or, or turn it, right? The magnetic north is still magnetic north, and so it is with our hearts. If, if our hearts haven't fundamentally turned in repentance from sin, wholehearted to God, then uh, behavior change uh, is not real repentance. This is a problem with, um, with us. It's a problem that goes way back. God's people, they're all history. Um, for many of the Exodus generation of Israelites, their bodies were marching toward the promised land, but their hearts were facing back towards Egypt. And over and over, the Lord would warn them and He disciplined them and He'd lead them to repentance. They'd ask for mercy, but soon enough, they would turn to unbelief again. And, it, and it's to this generation um, that, that, that Moses, writing the book of Genesis, is addressing this and, and calling them to a deeper kind of repentance than this, uh, to, to a heart change repentance. 
And this is what the text does for us as well. Genesis 43 calls us to real and lasting and and deep repentance. It's not naive to sin's stubbornness and, and how difficult it is indwelling sin, how hard it is to really change. It's not naive to that at all, but at the same time it shows us that real grace-driven and deep repentance is possible and indeed should be expected, should be inevitable for us in Christ. We get three pictures in this chapter of repentance. Three portraits of repentance. We'll work through them. Number one, Judah's repentance. Verses 1 through 10, we see Judah and the fruit of repentance, the evidence of repentance in his life. If there's anyone whose life should have been a moral train wreck, you'd think it would have been, would have been Judah's. Um, his life, so much of his life has been a life of sin, uh, not just for a year or two, but for many years. He, he lived in sin. In Genesis 37, uh, he's the brother who takes the lead in selling Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Genesis 38, uh, we see his life sort of come under the microscope for us, and we're given this this close-up look at what Judah is like, and it's not a pretty picture at all, right? He he leaves his father, he leaves the covenant family, he drifts from God, and he goes down and associates with the Canaanites, and then he marries a Canaanite, and all these signs are pointing to a life that is drifting further and further away from God. Um, He has sons, and they're even more sinful than he is. Uh, They marry, one of his sons marries a a Canaanite girl. He dies by God's judgment, and then the other son marries her, but won't do what he's supposed to do as a a brother to the dead husband. And and so he also is is judged by God, and then Judah refuses to give uh, his final son to this girl, even though it's what is right and expected and just for him to do. He, he makes her think he will, but he doesn't make it clear to her that he's not going to for a long time. And then, of course, Judah himself um, sees her and thinks she's a prostitute and has relations with her. Here's a man without loyalty. Here's a man without integrity. Here's a man without self-control who's living all for himself. That's Judah. And, and, and that doesn't just give us a snippet of his life. That, that, that's years and years that this takes place over decades as he has children and raises them um, and then has them marry. Um, this happens over years. Um, but then, after years of living in sin, God humbled him. Remember, at the end of that chapter, the end of Genesis 38, God God. God brought him to a place of humility and recognition of his, of his sin before God and the, the beginnings of a change. And, and now in chapter 43, we see a Judah that is so different. It almost seems like an entirely different person, doesn't it? Um, first, we see here in chapter 43, where in the past Judah was moving further and further from God and from the covenant family. Here in chapter 43, he's right in the middle of them, of them all. He's, he, he, he's, in the, he's with his father, he's with his brothers, and he's not only just dwelling with them, but he is assuming an important role of leadership among them. Um, at the end of chapter 42, Reuben, the oldest, had tried to persuade his father to let them go down to Egypt to get grain, uh, but, but had been not able to persuade his father. Now Judah, here in chapter 43, he takes the mantle of leadership. 
And he steps up and he's doing what needs to be done. And he's not thinking of himself first. He's thinking of the family first. And he's thinking of, uh, of what, what, what would be best for everyone. Um, Jacob doesn't want to let little Benjamin go down to Egypt with them, but Judah makes it clear. The man said, unless we bring him with us, we won't have any grain. And so Judah Judah's looking out for the well-being of his father. He's looking out for the well-being of his youngest brother. He's looking out for the well-being of all of them. Here's loyalty and respect and responsibility and initiative. Um, where before it was Judah is for Judah, now Judah is for God's people. Second, we see in verses 8 and 9, Judah takes personal responsibility to make sure Benjamin will survive and be brought safely back to Jacob. He says these wonderful words here in verses 8 and 9. Judah said to his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Do you hear the emphasis in his words? I myself will take responsibility. I will make sure he comes back. If anything happens, I will take the blame. You require it from my hand, Father. Um, this is the one who took the lead in selling Joseph into slavery. This is the one who hated his brother, hated that he was his father's favorite. This is the one who, 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 who took the lead in reenacting the drama of Cain and Abel in this covenant family. He took the coat of his brother Joseph and tore it and smeared it with blood and took it back to his father. He said, Dad, look what happened. And he saw it crush his father. And he had no compassion on his father in that moment when, before when he was sinning. And now he's saying to his father, I will be the one who makes sure that nothing happens to this boy. My life be forfeit if anything happens to him. I'll carry the, the guilt the rest of my life if anything happens. Um, he's giving, he's offering his life for his brothers. Um, where before he wanted nothing more than to take his brother's life. We're told, right, our Lord Jesus, greater love has no one than this, than they lay down their life for their friend, for their brother. And this is what Judah is doing. He's putting his life uh, as, as the pledge of his brothers. He is counting. He's learned to count others as more significant than himself. He no longer holds pride of place in his own heart. Um, it's one of those moments in Judah's life where we see Christ come through so clearly. Such a, a wonderful picture of, of Christ who will, who will come from Judah's line. Um, because our Lord Jesus is the one who gives his life as a pledge for ours. As it says in Hebrews 7.22, he, he is the pledge, the surety, the guarantee of our salvation. Uh, and our Lord Jesus doesn't just offer his life for ours just in case it's needed, does he? But he goes beyond. He actually gives his life, humbles himself to redeem us, gives his life to save us. So Judah's life has been turned from one of no integrity, no self-control, uh, uh, running from God. And now here it is, a life that is reflecting Christ himself. And loved ones, this is what repentance should look like. This is what our repentance should look like. 
God turned Judah from such a sinner into this uh, loyal, faithful, self-sacrificing saint. And, and so it should be with us that, that we should pray that God would do this work in our hearts, that He would, like He did with Judah's heart, reorient us towards God, make us, make us uh, to, to, to love God and love the people of God, to count others as more significant than ourselves. And then to be ready also, repentance sometimes requires a cost, but Judah doesn't balk at the cost. He doesn't turn back from the cost, but he's willing to give it. Repentance has a cost, doesn't it? Dying to ourself and giving up rights on ourselves. It involves Romans 12.1, becoming a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. This is, this is what we see in Judah. And it's our prayer that it's what we would see in ourselves. Where does it come from? It's not the circumstances that have changed. Right? Judah's heart, what's made this difference for him? What will make the difference for us? It's not that his father no longer has a favorite son. He clearly does. Benjamin's still the favorite. What's changed is that Judah's heart has been humbled. His heart has been humbled and he's seen his sin and he's seen the glories of God's grace and he's been humbled by that. And this is where repentance comes from, brothers and sisters. Repentance like this comes from a heart whose pride has been bulldozed by the gospel. And we see that all is of the grace of God. That's the first picture of repentance we get. The second one is, is Jacob. This is verses 11 through 14 where we see Jacob's repentance. <clears throat> Jacob is old now, uh, and God has been at work in his life for, for many years. His life is a mixture of, of, of growth and, and, and stagnation. Uh, we see both uh, the old man and the new man. We see, we see the flesh and the spirit at work, at work in Jacob here. There are still hints of stubborn old sins, but also we see the grace of God at work in him and evidence of of real growth and, and, and change. Um, we, see the, we see the stubborn old sins in verse 14, um, where Jacob refers to Simeon, who is his son, still in Egypt, in slavery, uh, as he thinks, in prison in Egypt. Um, he refers to him as your other brother. It's just a small thing, but, but um, I think it's suggestive um, because he refers to Benjamin there in verse 14 by name. But not Simeon. Simeon is just the other brother. Um, this sense you get is that if Benjamin were the one in prison and, 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 and he had to give all his other sons to get just Benjamin back, that he probably would do it. Um, not that he doesn't love his other sons, but that, but that he has this favoritism still, this partiality still. And this partiality, this favoritism, has been there his whole life. Uh, he grew up with it in his own household. Isaac and Rebecca, his, his mom and dad, had, he was his mom's favorite. His brother was his father's favorite. And it ruined, it, it tore apart so much of their family. And now he's carried it into his own family. And it began with his favoritism of his second wife, Rachel, over Leah. And, and it's gone on since then in, in, in the next generation of their children. It's wrong and it's destructive, but it's, it's deeply ingrained in him. And, and, and it still seems to be there. What do we make of this in Jacob? Um, he's a mature saint. He's one of the patriarchs. Shouldn't, shouldn't he be beyond this by now? Well, 
Yes, he should. Um, does it mean, though, that he's not really one of God's elect? No, it doesn't. Um, we all have sins that we will not get complete control over until glory. And, and the struggle against sin uh, will often be met with defeats because, because of the, just the power of indwelling sin and our, and our inability in our own strength to defeat it. Our battle with sin may be long and, and hard. Um, Confession of Faith, chapter 13 on sanctification describes it like this. It says, Sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part. Whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Do you hear what it says? That indwelling sin may be, uh, it, it will still affect every part of even the most mature saints. And, 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 and some sins may for a time get the victory. We see this play out in one of the giants of the faith here in, in Jacob's life. Uh, and that should be an encouragement to us. Uh, because that's how it is in our own lives as well, isn't it? We are not what we will be. We're not what we were. And that's a great encouragement. But we're not yet all that we will be. John Newton, um, author of Amazing Grace, also how sweet the name of Jesus sounds, other hymns, um, of course, in, in his youth, an infamous slave trader, converted by God in a dramatic fashion and, and, and brought to faith in Christ. Um, he, he writes this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. Uh, that's what we see in Jacob. And that's the encouragement for ourselves as well. Um, we, we do see, despite that sin, we, we still see growth. A couple of things here. A couple of evidences of his repentance and his ongoing growth in grace. Um, first of all, verses 11 and 12. We see here his generosity. Um, he's persuaded by Judah that if they don't go down to Egypt, they will starve to death. So as much as he hates to, uh, to let Benjamin go, he has no choice. And he tells them to take a gift back to the man there in Egypt with them. Um, the famine has apparently left Canaan, uh, Palestine without grain, uh, but there are still some fruits of the land, so he's able to send this down. But, but he also asks them to take the money back with them, the money that was given back, plus the money for the new grain. And he's showing generosity here. These are encouraging signs. Jacob of many years ago would not have done these things. Jacob of many years ago would lie, cheat, and steal to get what he wanted, and he'd manipulate situations uh, for his own good. But that is gone. No trace of that here at all. Here's integrity. Here's generosity. Second, I think more importantly, we see here Jacob lets Benjamin go. It's significant for him. He says, take your brother also and arise, go back to the man, and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. 
he would not let Benjamin go. But now he's trusting in God. He's trusting that God Almighty, El Elohim, as he says, will watch over him and, and will do what is best. Um, the name El Elohim, God Almighty there, is, is a significant one. This is the name that God tells Abraham to call him all the way back in, in Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis 17, God is uh, establishing his covenant with Abraham. He's going to pass through. Uh, he's going to give him the, the sign of circumcision uh, for the covenant. And he says, I am God Almighty. I am the God who is not just full of raw power, but God Almighty, the God who makes and keeps covenant promises, even ones that look impossible to you. The God who is going to give you, Abraham, a, a son, even though you think it's impossible. And then, again, Genesis 28. It's the name of God that Isaac uses when he blesses Jacob, sending him away. God Almighty, go with you and bless you. And then, it's the name that, uh, that when, when, when God brings Jacob back to the promised land, it's the name he uses there as well. God Almighty. Reminding him that he is the one who is able to keep his word. And now Jacob is putting all his hope on this name. God Almighty. That the God who makes promises with his people will keep his promises. And he's prepared to accept it. Uh, whatever might happen. In verse 14 he says, If I am bereaved... I am bereaved. Very similar to Esther's words, right? If I perish, I perish. That trust in God. I'm going to do what I have to do, and I'm going to trust the results with God. Not my will, but yours be done. Uh, here he is, Jacob, showing this wonderful trust in the Lord and letting control, letting control go. Right? Jacob, his whole life, has been grasping and manipulating and trying to control but now we see him learning to trust God Almighty and let go of that which he is uh, most afraid to let go of, even his son, Benjamin. And so even though Jacob has still indwelling sin, he also has these wonderful signs of the grace of God at work in him. Brothers and sisters, we should be able to see also in our lives the work of God. Yes, it might cover decades, uh, but, but to see the slow, steady work of his grace overcoming our sin and bringing us to greater and greater trust and confidence in God Almighty who keeps His promises. The third picture of repentance is the brothers. In the rest of the chapter, verses 15 through 34, we see evidence of the rest of the brothers' repentance. Uh, they, they come down to Egypt. Um, their experience this time is entirely different from the first time they came down. Recall that uh, the first time they came down to Egypt, Joseph was rough with them. He, 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 spoke, he spoke rough words with them. He treated them w without much kindness. Uh, he was suspicious of them, testing them. Uh, and now he's continuing the test, but he's changed the test. Instead of uh, stick, now it's carrot, if you will. Uh, now, now the test is, is something else. And uh, they can tell us that, that something is, is starting, startlingly different, and they're confused by it. Um, and they get worried by it. This Egyptian's being a little too nice. What's, what's he got up his sleeve? They think that he's trying to bring them to his house to, to uh, trap them and make them his slaves. Um, and so they're, they're anxious about this. Uh, they, they, as soon as they see the steward, they, before he can even say anything, they, they, they blurt out, uh, we, we brought the money, we found it in our sacks, uh, we didn't steal it, here it is, uh, just to try to uh, cut that off if that was going to be the approach. 
um, to show their integrity. Um, but but the kind the kindness continues. The steward says, "No, God God put it in your sacks." The steward did. He was the one who actually did it. But he is attributing it to God and the God of their fathers. Um, and then Joseph comes at noon, and he he continues this wonderful hospitality. He speaks a word of blessing on Benjamin. God be gracious to you, my son. They don't notice his overwhelming emotion that he has to leave the the room before he can come back. Um, what they do notice is that when it's time to sit down to the meal, um, they're all sitting in their birth order. Uh, that's quite a feat. Even if you did know this family, it might be hard having them over for lunch to get them all in the right order with 11 of them. Um, has this man been spying on us? Practicing divination. How does he know? And then the test comes, the final piece of the test that Joseph is setting up for them. He gives Benjamin five times the food he gives them. Um, Benjamin is the, uh, is the youngest. He's not, he's not a little boy at this point. Uh, I'm sure he could eat a good amount. Um, but uh, five times as much? No, I don't think so. Um, what's, what's all this food showing? Obvious favoritism. I imagine being at a restaurant and, and you order a steak and your buddy orders a steak. And the server brings you one, normal size, you know. But then the other guy, he's got five stacked on his plate. Well, who's, what's so special about you? <laughs> that, that, that's what he's doing. He's saying, here, here's the, it's an extravagant show of favoritism. What's the test? Are they going to be jealous? Their youngest brother, favored by their father. Now they come to Egypt, and this guy's showing favoritism too. Right? Joseph is testing. Is there any trace of jealousy and envy left? Any sign at all? None. The text says, the end of the chapter, they drink and they're merry with him. They're not jealous. They don't, they don't, uh, they don't, there's no sideways glances uh, trying to uh, uh, figure out what's going on and steal the favoritism. No bickering, uh, no rivalry at all. Uh, their repentance here seems complete. They're able to just rejoice in the favoritism shown to their brother. This is what we should expect from the grace of God, isn't it? We don't believe in perfectionism. We don't, we don't believe that you can get to this point where you're sinless in this life. But we do believe that God, by His grace, is able to bring real change. I mean, these brothers, before, with Joseph, they hated him. And, and the more favoritism he received, uh, the, the more it grated on them. But now there's none of that there. God, by His grace, has completely changed them. That this, this sin is gone. There is no more envy and, and no more rivalry. And, and this is what God is able to do by His Spirit, brothers and sisters. And so we should be encouraged. We should be encouraged to press on in repentance. To, 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 to strive after real growth in grace in Christ by His Spirit. Why? Because He promises that, that, that there is hope for change. And that there is hope for, 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 for growth in grace and more conformity to the image of Christ. Real repentance is necessary. And it's possible in Christ by the Spirit whom He's given. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and the encouragement of Your Word and the usefulness of Your Word. 
We pray that You would encourage us, O God, by Your Spirit to press on in the grace that You give and that You would work in our hearts and work in our lives over the days and months and years and decades to help us put to death the old man and more and more put on Christ. This we pray in our Savior's name. Amen.